I wish all everyone who read the book read it as carefully as you have, Tim. Um, that's, um, that's right. That's exactly what we we're trying to do. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio Season 2. It is April 21st, 2007. We are back from our little spring break. Hope you didn't miss us too much, and I hope you are ready for more underground esoteric interviews, as only you can find here on BOA Audio. This week we have a very cool episode for you. I think it will go down as one of the more memorable interviews that we've ever done here on the program. Our guest is Tony Healy, co-author of The Yowie, In Search of Australia's Bigfoot. And he comes to the program direct from Australia. This interview literally spanned two continents and two days as we recorded it on a Friday night here in America, and it was Saturday morning in Australia. In this conversation, we're going to talk about the evolution of the Yowie in Australia, from Aboriginal reports to colonial settlers seeing the Yowie a strange blackout of Yowie news for about 75 years, and then a Yowie renaissance in 1975 in Australia, plus some intriguing modern-day reports of civilization butting up against Yowie territory, the other mysterious cryptid in Australia, the Junjidi. What is the Junjidi, and what's the difference between the Junjidi and the Yowie? You're going to find out from Tony Healy. Interesting trends and characteristics of the Yowie, the paranormal elements of the Yowie, and, of course, tons and tons more. This is a jam-packed interview. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Tony Healy, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Canberra-based Tony Healy became involved in Yowie research in the mid-1970s. Since 1981, he and Yowie co-author Paul Cropper have collaborated on many projects, notably in co-authoring Out of the Shadows, Mysterious Animals of Australia, which contained a lengthy chapter about the elusive Yowie. Over the past 30 years, they have searched for lake monsters, hairy giants, out-of-place big cats, and other semi-legendary animals in Fiji, North America, the Bahamas, Iceland, Ireland, Great Britain, Nepal, Malaysia, and every state and territory in Australia. You can find out more on Tony Healy at the website yowiefile.com, Y-O-W-I-E-F-I-L-E.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 16, 2007, direct from Canberra, Australia, Tony Healy, talking about the Yowie on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. I wish all, everyone who read the book read it as carefully as you have, Tim. Um, that's, um, that's right, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Banal of America. 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 Audio.
were the young fellow um, who told us an awful lot about um, his clan's interaction and knowledge of the hairy man. But one thing he wouldn't tell us was the word they used for the hairy man in his tribe. He said that this word was a word you had to say if you happened to meet one face to face. That was supposedly what you said. Now the effect of that word, I don't know. Perhaps it was a greeting or perhaps it was some kind of magic incantation. I'm just not sure. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio, and we have just a very special edition of the program for you this week. Our guest is Tony Healy, and he's coming to us direct from Australia. He's the co-author with Paul Cropper of The Yowie, In Search of Australia's Bigfoot. Tony Healy, welcome to the program. Ah, nice to be here, uh, Tim. Like I said, I'm just really excited to have you on the program. Uh, I checked out this book, The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot, about in the last month or two, and it is amazing. I cannot, I cannot speak highly enough of it. It is just one of the best uh, cryptozoology books I've read in such a long time, and a fascinating look at a branch of esoterica in another country that really opens your eyes to, you know, the whole sociology of of what's going on there. I, I give it the highest recommendation I can. I hope all of the Banal of America audio listeners check out the book, The Yowie, In Search of Australia's Bigfoot. And now we got you on the program to talk about it. I'm so excited. Let's start out first with your bio and the background and all that good stuff and how you gravitated toward the paranormal and the esoteric and, and how your journey began. Well, uh, yes, that's uh, going back a fair way now, uh, Tim. I'm, I'm almost 62 years old and... Uh, so I think uh, it was about 50 years ago, I was about 12 years old, and I picked up a book on the Loch Ness Monster in our local library. Uh, it was um, More Than a Legend by Constance White, and uh, that got me uh, quite excited. I thought, one of these fine days I'd like to go to Loch Ness, and ultimately I did. I've been there about four times. But um, uh, after that, um, I... Um, I glimpsed a strange animal in North Queensland one time while driving. Um, not tremendously exciting. Uh, a big, it looked like an American puma. Of course, they're, they're not supposed to exist in Australia. I just wasn't entirely sure um, whether I'd imagined it, but I, uh, I learned later that there had been many sightings in that area of similar creatures. So that was probably something that kicked me along. And then... In uh, 1969, I was working in Canada, in British Columbia, in uh, logging, mm -hmm. uh, a logging camp up near um, Terrace, BC, and also around uh, Pitt Lake. And in both places, I heard stories of the Sasquatch. And um, it took me a long while to realise that the guys up there were serious. Um, some of them knew people who'd seen these creatures. And, of course, that got me quite excited, and I... Um, sometimes took a little plastic camera that I had at the time <laughs> and wandered off into the trees on the weekends, um, but um, uh, didn't see anything. And uh, then when I returned to Australia, um, I, um, I was then about 30 years old. Uh, oh, no, wait on, I'm getting ahead of myself. There was a trip to Loch Ness <laughs> in the meantime there. But um, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, in, um, in 1978, I... Um, 
I went on a, a two-year round-the-world trip looking for um, uh, the Sasquatch in North America for about uh, 11 months there, and then on to um, Scotland uh, to revisit Loch Ness, uh, then to the Himalayas and also to the Malay Peninsula looking for um, uh, yetis and uh, yeti-like creatures. And uh, on my return to Australia, um, I slowly uh, gathered information on um, a um, Bigfoot-like creature here, the Yowie. So um, uh, around that time, I ran into Paul Cropper. Uh, and between us, we've researched many uh, Australian cryptozoological mysteries. And um, <clears throat> we've put together a lot of that information in um, our first book, Out of the Shadows, Mystery Animals of Australia. Uh, 1994, that one was, <coughs> and uh, since then we've been working on the book about the um, the Yowie, which um, you um, mentioned, and thanks for your uh, kind words about it. Uh, so um, yes, uh, in that um, more than 10 years, we've um, um, put together all our information on the Yowie, and um, and this book is uh, the uh, result of that work. Yeah, like I said, it's just an outstanding book. Um just well put together, amazing case files in there, just a wealth of material, and just tremendous. I really, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I, I just really enjoyed it a tremendous amount. And, and um, you can get the book, obviously, at Amazon.com, of course, and uh, it's via Anomalist Books, and um, you can find out more there at AnomalistBooks.com. Those are the places where you can go to get Yowie in search of Australia's Bigfoot. Amazing book. Let's just dive right in here now to the Yowie mystery. Before we even sort of like delve into the history of the Yowie in Australia and all that stuff, let's let's bring people up to date on what exactly the Yowie is. And I guess the best description would be, as the title of the book suggests, Australia's Bigfoot. But of course, there's much, much more to it than that. Tell the audience about the Yowie and describe it and what it is. Uh, yes, Tim. Well, um, as far as we know, uh, to, to, to judge from... Um all uh, eyewitness accounts, uh, and uh, Paul and I, Paul Cropper and I between us have interviewed 120 eyewitnesses, and we have on top of that another um, 200 or so reports from uh, colonial times and, uh, and so on. Um, it seems that people are describing something very much like the um, American uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Um, we can't say for sure because nobody can say anything about these creatures for sure. But um, to to go from the, the top of the head down to the uh, the ankles, um, it uh, it seems that there there may be a sagittal crest or or something, uh, some feature on the top of the head. So it's because um, often people say the head was sort of dome shaped, but rather pointy. Like a perhaps a man in a in a in a, a hooded coat, a stiffly you know like a like a a church door effect you know or a football shape with a kind of a point on the top, but but not um, not um, uh, greatly so. Just a, a suggestion of a pointed uh, top to the head. Then the other thing that is constantly mentioned is um, that the head rests straight on the shoulders without benefit of neck. That is almost 100% of eyewitnesses and Aboriginal law says that. Um, somehow or other, they can still turn their head to look at you, but, but it seems as if 
the head is dead straight into the shoulders. Um, frequently, they say the head looks small compared to the shoulders or to the body in general. Um, the shoulders are wide, they're very wide, um, but um, perhaps uh, uh, sloping at the same time to some extent. The arms are very long. Some people say they were somewhat below, the hands were below the knees. Um, some often they say the hands were down about to the knees. Uh, the posture's a little slumped forward in many cases, so people say, well, the, the arms perhaps wouldn't have um, been, been quite so long had the thing been standing up dead straight. Um, in general, they, they, they look like, you might say, a, a gorilla with, with long legs in proportion, the same proportion as the humans. Um, long, strong legs, uh, very uh, thick body. Uh, the, the torso often is said to be the same width almost all the way down. On other occasions, it's said to taper somewhat. Um, the hands appear to be human-like. Those few people who've had a good look at the hands say that they appear to be five-fingered. Um, the nails or claws uh, appear to be quite long in some cases. Um, fearsomely long occasionally, people say. Um, so the, the thumbnail sketch we have of the, um, the Yowie is pretty consistent from the top of the head down to the ankle. Um, the, the face is um, said to be either the face of an ape-like man or a man-like ape. Aborigines say these things are men, but they're, they're hairy ape-like men. Um, Europeans or non-Aborigines, that's a bit of a 50-50 situation. Uh, some say they're more ape-like and some say they're more man-like. Um, almost always the skin is said to be you know, coppery brown, black to coppery brown, rather dark anyway. The hair often covers almost all the face, um, right up to just below the eyes, so um, some people can't make a call on the colour of the skin at all. Um, sometimes there are said to be, um, of the upper canines are said to be very prominent and even protruding below the bottom lip when the mouth is closed. Um, the only area where things get very vague and funny are, is below ankle level, yeah. where uh, the shape of the feet is um, uh, very difficult to establish. We have we get few, a lot fewer track signs in Australia than you do in North America, uh, a lot fewer, uh, because I think the ground is dry and stony compared to North America. There's very little snow, and um, but even so, it seems strange that we have um, so few good plastic-cast footprints. We have some five-toed ones that look reasonably okay. We have other more bizarre shapes, but uh, we could get into that later. But but the um, uh, here's a, a quote by an old Aboriginal elder from the South Coast, interviewed in 1954. Their word for the uh, Yowie was Doolagal, because there were many different Aboriginal terms for the Yowie. Mm-hmm. He says, a Doolagal is a gorilla-like man. He has long spindly legs. He has a big chest, long arms. His forehead goes back from his eyebrows. His head goes into his shoulders, no neck. Um, and he goes on to say where they live down there. 
But uh, yeah, that's about the uh, strength of it. Something like a like a Bigfoot or a, or a Yeti. Except for the strange feet. We'll talk about the bizarre foot situation uh, in a little bit. But uh, that is sure. one of the most compelling aspects of the Yowie uh, mystery. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, this. Uh, I'm really in love with the Yowie now. I'm, <laughs> I've enjoyed <laughs> that must, book so much. You come out here, and uh, if you come out here someday, we'll give you a tour of some of the uh, Yowie areas. I think, uh, I think a Yowie hunt may be on the agenda, definitely. Well, you're always welcome. Talk a little bit about the evolution of uh, the Yowie in Australia and how... How the Aborigines, it's not just a, a modern sort of thing. It, 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 it was around with the Aborigines and, and evolved over time, and it's been going on since since the good old days, if you will. Uh, yes, uh, certainly has, Tim. Um, as far as uh, we can establish, um, virtually every Aboriginal clan from Cape York Peninsula in the north right down to um, Victoria in the south um, believe strongly in the existence of these creatures and uh, when you talk to the Aborigines about it they say well our people have always believed in these creatures the creatures have always been here Um, one or two Aboriginal legends um, uh, specifically say that these creatures were here before the Aborigines got here so um, they they certainly do believe in them Um, they, uh, there are, there's cave art in, um, in Cape York, uh, depicting, uh, the Yowie. Uh, we have a photograph of one cave painting in the book. And, um, there are legends of, um, handed down over God knows how many years of, um, Aborigines engaging in, uh, sporadic warfare with these big hairy giants. Wow. Over, presumably over, Possibly millennia, or at least hundreds of years, and resulting in the um, in the Yowies withdrawing into the um, into the least accessible rocky forested mountains. So, um, uh, and the Aboriginal <coughs> descriptions of the Yowie are very similar. Uh, they match really well uh, the descriptions given by um, <coughs> modern non-Aboriginal eyewitnesses today. And um, what's fascinating, too, is that these, uh, obviously, the legends of the Yowie were in existence with the Aborigines. And then when the Europeans started coming to Australia, they had their own Yowie sightings. In some cases, they had heard about the Yowie beforehand when, when they had run into the Aborigines. And in other cases, they they hadn't really heard about it. But it, it brings a sort of different element into it that, that now when the Europeans came, the Yowies, that didn't go away. It wasn't like, it wasn't something that... You'd think if it was a made-up tribal thing that no one would see it, but it turns out when these Europeans came, they started having Yowie sightings. Yes, yes, that's the most exciting thing, I think, uh, that um, the colonial-era um, pioneers um, described the same sort of thing. Um, we, uh, Paul, my colleague, Paul Cropper, he's uh, very uh, good at digging up um, early reports and... Um, we have um, eyewitness reports dating back to 1847. We have rumours, strong rumours, um, prior to 1847 um, of sightings by non-Aborigines. Uh, certainly some naturalists and uh, officials in New South Wales were talking about these creatures uh, earlier. Um, and... Um, 
people were writing about them, uh, writing about Aboriginal beliefs in them anyway, as early as um, 18, uh, the mid-1820s. So, um, yes, it goes back a long way. And then what I found really fascinating, too, was uh, it seems like once uh, Australia sort of got settled as, as a... I don't know. I'm not familiar with the with the country with uh, the evolution as far as the country of Australia. So I may be wrong about when it got established. But yeah. from about the 1900 from from around 1900 to 1975, as you guys point out in the book, um, there seemed to be just a complete uh, lack of Yowie information, Yowie sightings. Yowie sort of fell completely off the radar in Australia uh, for a very long period of time. Um, talk about what. what what that was all about, and why you think that happened, and then sort of how how it came out of the doldrums there. Uh, yes, that was odd. For for many years, um, Paul and I used to talk about the forgotten years, or uh, or some such phrase. We couldn't work out why there seemed to be a lot of reports through the colonial era, which ended in 1901 when the states got together to form Australia, the federation. Uh, somewhere around about there. From there through to about 1975, which seems a very precise date, but there's a reason for that. Uh, for those first 75 years of the 1900s, there were virtually no reports that we could find. <clears throat> we had one or two or three, um, but um, uh, nowadays we have more because of Paul's research but um, and for other reasons. But I, I think the, <clears throat> the reason why there was uh, sort of a silence that came down in those years was um, that, um, ironically, uh, in the early 1900s, um, a lot of people were drifting from the outback to the cities uh, or the towns. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was because of mechanisation of farming. They, they needed not so many people in the rural areas, and um, a lot of... Um, villages and uh, small towns in the rural areas became ghost towns, partly because of that um, uh, depletion of uh, population in the rural areas and partly because of the end of the gold rushes. Uh, there, during the mid-1800s, there were hundreds of thousands of people wandering around all over the countryside um, looking for gold and, and hearing stories about the hairy man or the yowie. But... Um, uh, after the gold rushes ended, the big gold rushes ended about 1890. Um, another factor, I think, was uh, tragically the, the the Aborigines at that time were pretty well defeated in um, frontier wars. You know, like uh, as in North America with the uh, Native Americans, and um, they were a lot of the um, Aborigines in southeastern Australia had their 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 world completely destroyed. They, in some cases, they lost their language and uh, even their names. Uh, they they were um, confined to reservations, <coughs> um, partly for good reasons. Uh, I think you know they were uh, at least safe from uh, the worst kind of um, of, uh, of, of frontier outlaw type people there. Uh, but they were. Um, for in the early 1900s um, and in the mid 1900s, uh, when I was growing up, uh, there was very little contact between uh, Aborigines and most non-Aborigines. Uh, they were kind of out of sight and out of mind. 
And um, I think they kept a lot of things to themselves, you know. They they thought, well, if they mentioned uh, a hairy man to, uh, to some people, they'd be laughed at. And uh, besides which, there is a kind of a taboo element about the hairy man law uh, in Aboriginal society. Some Aborigines don't like to talk about it at all. But, um, uh, yes, uh, in those years, too, uh, it was a funny time. Um, although the modern era was coming on, the road system in the outback was just terrible. I mean, people didn't go out there for recreation much because your car would fall apart, you know. Um, it was a huge adventure for me, even in the uh, 19, early 1960s, to to go all the way up to Darwin and um, over to Western Australia and places like that. And uh, it was pretty primitive, you know. There were no four-wheel drives. People didn't go out there. And, of course, a lot of country newspapers in that era folded up along with the small towns that they served. So we had mainly big city newspapers, which perhaps, if they got received stories on the Yauhi, um, perhaps didn't want to... Um, uh, feature them, they just couldn't believe them. So, <laughs> that's the story, Tim, I don't know. And then uh, something strange happened in 1975, as you sort of allude to, and that was this explosion um, of the Yowie, uh, Yowie Renaissance, if you will. Um, uh, talk about uh, what what precipitated that, what caused this Yowie Renaissance, and uh, what the mood was like as far as the cryptozoology community, which seemed to be sort of, um, it was like a birth almost of the cryptozoology community when this Yowie Renaissance happened. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. For sure. Um, yes, uh, well, I guess um, credit should, most credit should go to just one guy for that, um, uh, Rex Gilroy, who um, uh, in, in 19, about 1974, 75, began to um, write articles for popular magazines in Australia and um, sometimes uh, for the tabloids. Uh, he um, he was based in the Blue Mountains, which is a really, really wild area to the west of Sydney. And uh, he'd heard of um, uh, Yowie stories since he was a kid. And um, then he uh, had an experience in 1970 where he uh, saw a, um, a Yowie walking across a, uh, a small clearing in the Blue Mountains. Uh, and um, so... Uh, uh, Rex went public uh, and uh, appealed for information about these creatures and uh, a lot of people responded evidently um, I, I have a couple of large files about uh, Rex's um, his articles and the responses um, I met him at that time because I had only just begun to collect one or two Yowie stories then I've heard um, one from the colonial era uh, near Canberra here and one from the far south coast of New South Wales, which was supposedly ongoing. Uh, but um, I, ironically, I was saving madly to, to go overseas to look for the Bigfoot Sasquatch in North America and uh, to carry on to the Himalayas and so on. And I just found it. Well, I just couldn't get my mind around the idea that there could be similar creatures in Australia um, because I had um, I had worked in almost every state of Australia, every state and territory of Australia prior to that in, in, in remote areas 
And apart from those two instances I mentioned, I'd never heard a thing about the Yowie, not a single thing. And to suddenly have this sort of inkling in the mid-70s that there could be something, uh, I just couldn't believe it. And uh, I talked to Rex, but um, he couldn't offer any... He didn't offer any documentation for his claims. And I, I thought, well, he must be... I just, I just can't believe this. I put it aside for two years until I returned from overseas. Um, in that same time, around... Uh, just before I left for overseas, 1977, Graham Joyner, who is a, um, an archivist here in Canberra at the National Archives, a very serious... Um, erudite fellow, a scientist, uh, totally different really from Rex. Um, uh, Graham put out a, a little 26-page booklet which was actually jam-packed with, with early references to the, to the Yowie, or Hairy Man, as um, it's often called. Uh, he'd stumbled over these um, <coughs> early references uh, in the National Archives. And his book appeared as virtually as I had my air ticket in my hand ready to go overseas looking for the, for the Bigfoot. Uh, but I got together with Graham and I thought, well, there is something to this. I guess, you know, I'll check it out when I get home. But um, certainly um, by between 1975 and 1980, um, a small number of people such as myself and Paul Cropper and uh, Graham and, uh, and Rex were starting to collect stories and um, and then uh, in more recent years with what with um, uh, internet and uh, microfiche and, uh, and all that stuff, Paul has been able to delve back into that those forgotten years prior to 1975 and, uh, and now we have quite a few stories from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s and 50s and so on. So we filled in those years, and uh, we've both been lucky enough to um, to go and interview some of the old timers who were still alive. Um, so, um, so we have awesome, more or less filled in that blank. Yes, it's really uh, yeah, that's fascinating about um, just how how it sort of became. I don't know, sort of just began then in '75. It's really a strange situation in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, would you say that today, in the modern day, um, the modern day field in, in in general sort of is similar in a way to the American cryptozoology scene, where you now at least have people who are investigating this and are taking reports and and are actively looking for the Yowie and that sort of thing. Uh, yes, yes, it's it's um, it's very similar right now, um, in my experience. Um, um, uh, yes, we have we have some very well organised groups such as um, Australian Yowie Research, um, AYR. They have their own uh, website. Uh, Dean Harrison, a good friend of ours, who helped us a great deal with uh, reports for our book. He um, uh, he has an organisation. I think he's got about uh, forty people wow. in, in, ver- in various states, from Queensland to um, to um, Victoria. And um, they go out with uh, uh, Dean um, is a um, fairly uh, wealthy guy, and uh, he um, has um, 
uh, got an awful lot of high-tech equipment, you know, infrared um, devices and uh, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And they go out um, <laughs> in camouflage gear, you know, with the four-wheel drives and uh, and so on. And they they put in a fair bit of time out there. They um, they really give it their all because uh, and they've come up with some interesting stuff. Uh, Dean uh, got interested because. Um, he had a particularly hair-raising encounter with a, a Yowie himself um, uh, in the uh, hinterland behind the, um, the Gold Coast in Queensland, uh, I think in 1996. Uh, he was chased by a particularly cranky uh, Yowie that seemed intent on, on ripping him limb from limb. Oh, wow. So uh, it would have uh, reduced me to jelly, you know. <laughs> but the uh, team's made of sterner stuff. He uh, he just wanted to get to the bottom of the mystery after that. And uh, one of the sort of sub-questions here I wanted to ask you about was uh, that came up a couple times in the book, and you alluded to it just now when you were discussing the Aborigines, and that was that uh, there's sort of a taboo aspect where they don't want to talk about it or they'll tell you some things and then they'll be like, well, we can't tell you anything else, though, or what uh, we can't, you know, that there's things that ha- about the Yowie that have to remain a secret and that kind of strange sort of thing. Um, and this is like a two-part sort of question coming out of that thought. First of all, why do you think they have that attitude? And uh, and the B part is, what, what do you think they're not telling us about the Yowie that uh, maybe would shed some light on all this? Uh, yes, uh, well... Um I hope I can give some sort of coherent uh, response to that. It's um, because it's something we had to sort of um, be careful with in the book. You know, um, we had to respect Aboriginal tradition uh, and try and spell out um, their beliefs. Uh, yes, it's, it's strange. Um, uh, some Aborigines. This 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 is, has been reported by. Um, anthropologists and so on since the colonial era and and our own experience uh, reflects this that some Aborigines um, refuse to talk about the Yowie at all they'll they'll just change the subject or um, or turn their back or say oh no no rubbish never heard of it uh, I've, 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 I've talked to one Aborigine I worked with him uh, briefly down the coast the south coast of New South Wales in an area that I know all Aborigines if not 90% of White people believe in the Yowie, and um, I raised the subject with him, and he he said, no, "Never heard of it. Never heard of it." Um, so he just didn't want to talk about it. Uh, others will talk about it reasonably freely, um, and uh, some, as you say, will will say, "Yes, well, um, uh, there are there are certain things about it, like the, for instance, the name in 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 the." Um, Gujinbara clan uh, in northern, northeastern New South Wales. There was a young fellow, um, Kyle Slab, who um, told us an awful lot about um, the, his his clan's interaction and knowledge of the um, of the hairy man. But um, one thing he wouldn't tell us was the name that they called that the, the word they used for the hairy man in his tribe. He said that this word was a word you had to say if you happened to meet one face-to-face. You had to, that was supposedly what you said. Now, the effect of that word, I don't know. Perhaps it was a greeting or perhaps it was some kind of magic incantation. Um, I'm just not sure. But 
he wouldn't tell us that. Uh, ironically, when he first met a Yowie face-to-face, that word was the last thing in his mind. He just screamed and turned and ran, he yeah. said. He, um, and it was only, only later he remembered um, the tribal law. Uh, but, um, uh, yes, uh, let me see. Um, uh, the Aboriginal law about these things. Um, well, um, they generally... What they what they convey to me is that they the creatures are are real. That is, you can touch them, or they can grab you, or they might even grab um, a child and run off with it, mm-hmm. either to eat it or, or kill it or something. And they they certainly have been seen many times um, killing kangaroos and uh, and grabbing grabbing food off out of campsites and so on. Um, yet. At the same time, there's something spiritual about them, um, something uncanny. Um, one one Aborigine said to me in so many words, um, uh, I said, well, how would you go about, you know, could you photograph or uh, how would you go about catching one of these things? Or, uh, and uh, she uh, said, oh, oh no, um, uh, they're real, but, but you, you can't catch them. You can't catch them. They're real, but you can't catch them. I've heard similar things um, many times. Uh, I um, see, even though you know I was born and raised in Australia, and I've worked with Aborigines, and I'm interested in their culture and uh, and so on, and written a little bit about them. I, I don't pretend to know everything about about them at all. And, and Paul, in fact, Paul Cropper is part Aboriginal, although he yeah, he was raised by. Um, uh, white people, but um, so he's lost his um, uh, any knowledge, direct knowledge there. But um, um, yeah, I don't pretend to really have a have a grip on the Aboriginal mindset about what is real and what is not. Um, if you know what I mean, yeah. uh, I think their their view to generalise to generalise greatly. I think the Aboriginal world view is a bit different from ours in that. The, the line between real, the, the real world and the spirit world is, is a lot fuzzier. They, possibly it's the same with many Native Americans, uh, they, they, they see, for one thing, they, they appear to see spiritual, a spiritual side to everything, like every rock and every tree and every breath of air and a drop of pollen has some kind of um, spiritual aspect, which actually I agree with myself, <laughs> but... Uh, but I, I can't feel it, you know, mm-hmm. except on rare occasions. Whereas I, I think with them, uh, particularly the ones who still live in the in the tribal structure, I, I think their view of what's real and what is not is um, is different from ours. Um, so um, they would naturally, I think, see spirit, some spiritual aspects to the Howie. Because after all, they see they see spiritual aspects to crows and kangaroos. So. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I think there is uh, there's something about the Yowie that um, I mean, they don't have a taboo about talking about kangaroos, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> there's something there's something awfully scary and awfully strange, I think, about the Yowie. I call me superstitious, um, and perhaps this is jumping ahead a little in the um, in the conversation here, but. Um, I often think there's there's something rather uncanny about the Yowie. I'm not sure what it is, but um, 
I kind of think the Aborigines might be onto something. And in the book, you do a great job of uh, sort of outlining what would be called the Yowie hotspots, and you talk about um, the various uh, parts of Australia that, that seem to have a lot of Yowie sightings. And, and what, one of the aspects of the book that I did like a lot is that you uh, address any sort of criticism before someone could make it in a way, where you say, you know, these are Yowie hotspots, but they might be Yowie hotspots because we have a lot of investigators there. I have a lot of respect for that. Instead of just leaving that open-ended so in case someone could come along and say exactly what you just said, you know what I mean? I appreciate that that uh, that you address potential problems in, in, in your points, which is really awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, yeah, I, I wish all, everyone who read the book read it as carefully as you have, Tim. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to, we were anticipating you know, people's questions. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the points uh, that I wanted to make about these Yowie hotspots is that y you sort of make in the book, um, and you, you and Paul obviously make in the book, is uh, that, that the, 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 there's these situations here, what I dub as the neighborhood Yowies, where there's families, uh, and you have a couple of interesting cases in there with the Frost family and the O'Connor family, where uh, they live sort of close to the border here between as the cities expand and get closer into the wild part of Australia, there's sort of a fuzzy border there and and the, the people on the edge and in these hotspots is where uh, there are these situations where there's a lot of interaction with the Yowie. Um, can you talk about uh, those cases of the neighborhood Yowies, as I call them? Uh, yes, certainly, uh, Tim. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, there are a few places, um, such as the Gold Coast hinterland, where the, the city is expanding rapidly and the western edge is hitting some, well, inaccessible jungly areas. And and also down in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, where the city of Sydney has expanded westward and just run head-on into the um, escarpment of the Blue Mountains, which is uh, an area of thousands and thousands of square miles, tens of thousands of square miles of, of ravines and jungle-covered um, cliffs um, as wild as any country you can get. And the city of Sydney is, is then funneled down into, into essentially one road that runs through the Blue Mountains, and there are settlements along that road. And hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of houses in those settlements back directly onto this um, just amazing wilderness that stretches for hundreds of kilometres uh, north and south. So uh, the Frosts and the O'Connors are two such families. They they live uh, their backyards uh, front onto this wilderness. Uh, neither of them, uh, coincidentally, have a back fence. So uh, their property ends where the jungle begins. Um, for since the mid 1980s, Neil and Sandy Frost have had, um, uh, well, as we know now, um, Yowies occasionally visiting their property, coming up and um, staring through the windows or bashing the side of the house or stealing the dog food. Um, for eight years, the Frosts simply couldn't believe that. Um, this was going on. They they knew that um, the footfalls were much too heavy for a human, and that whatever this creature was, it could charge through thick, thorny scrub in the middle of the night uh, with no illumination. Uh, a human would get torn to shreds running around there at night. 
Um, and um, eventually, however, they um, they started to glimpse this creature. It seemed to be mainly one individual, which they they called uh, Fatfoot because it had this sort of uh, strange-looking footprint. They they found footprints on two occasions. On the first occasion, it was actually very early in the time they were there. They just cleared their block to begin building the house, uh, and there were clear footprints, a line of clear footprints in the uh, in the soil. At that time, that was that was their first, very first experience. They just assumed someone was joking, that someone was walking around with big feet or something. Um, so, they, although they looked at the footprints, um, eight years later when they started to take the phenomenon seriously, they couldn't remember the exact shape of the footprints that had been there. Uh, the footprints that have appeared since have been less clear, but they have this funny, well, rather, yeah, fat look about them, <laughs> to, to, uh, uh, to use their term. But... Um, Anyway, um, uh, yes, every member of the family, the, uh, the two parents and the, um, uh, boy and the girl have both, uh, have all seen the Yowie now. Um, Neil, uh, is quite an ingenious fellow. Uh, he's a school teacher, uh, with a scientific bent and he's rigged up cameras with trip wires. He's rigged up a infrared, um, triggered camera. He's gone out night hundreds on hundreds of occasions with cameras at night. Um, and in the daytime, <coughs> looking around, he's managed to get two photographs, which he believes, and I think he's right, that, that, that both of these do show the Yowie, but um, as he cheerfully admits, um, neither photograph would um, convince anyone who's inclined to be sceptical because um, uh, they're just too indistinct. One, one simply shows glowing eyes, which a skeptic would say, well, it's a possum or something like that. But Neil knows that he was advancing on this creature and it was backing away. He could hear the big footsteps and uh, other noises associated with them when he took the photograph. The other one was taken by his uh, infrared camera. And when viewed um, under optimum conditions, that is, blown up on a, um, on a colour TV monitor, you can see it looks it looks like a black non-human face staring around a sapling, staring at a tree at him. But um, we couldn't use it in our book because try as we might, we, when we converted it to black and white and uh, reduced it to the size for the book, it just it just became a what's that term? Ro- 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 the Rorschach. Rorschach. Yes. <laughs> so um, we thought it best not to use that. But um, yes, um, Neil's still trying. Uh, every every second week, he uh, he phones up and says, "Well, uh, they're back." He thinks the original one is now dead or gone. There seems to be a younger, slightly smaller one wandering around um, um, his street. Um, in his street, there are um, about thirty households that have. Where people have actually seen these creatures, or or had um, uh, chickens killed, or um, uh, pets carried off, or dog food um, removed. <clears throat> so um, it's an ongoing thing. And then on the uh, he lives in on the northern edge of a Blue Mountain settlement. 
on the southern edge of the same settlement, about two kilometres away, um, live um, the front, uh, the O'Connors, um, Jerry and Sue O'Connor. And um, ever since they've moved into their property in 1997, they've had very similar experiences. Um, these uh, incredible lion-like roars, uh, like a cross between a lion, a bear, or something. People, people grope for terms to express the, um, the the sound that these creatures can make when apparently they're threatened or enraged. Uh, now, the frosts and uh, <coughs> the O'Connors have, have heard those vocalisations, which were also mentioned by um, pioneers during the um, colonial era in the Blue Mountains. And um, the, the O'Connors, however, uh, have a, a slightly different take, or a rather different take on the uh, phenomenon than the uh, than the frost. Whereas the frosts are convinced these things are just big flesh and blood creatures who can see in the dark um, and who are very intelligent and um, and elusive. Uh, the O'Connors. Uh, after a year or two of experiences, are now uh, quite convinced that they're dealing with something that's um, paranormal in some way. Uh, as, as as Jerry says, um, these creatures that they, they can read your bloody mind. He said, "I'm sure of it." Uh, one of the stories that I wanted you to talk about because it was amazing. It's an amazing story, um, and I'm not sure off the top of my head if it was the Frosts or the O'Connors, but I'm pretty sure it was one of them. Uh, attempted to get some audio recording of the Yowie and uh, hid an audio recorder, and the result was an amazing story, and, and that's what I'd like you to tell now. And, and you put it in the book under uh, Midnight Creeper. So, <laughs> so uh, talk about the, uh, the Midnight Creeper and the audio recording. Uh, yeah, uh, for sure. Well, um, uh, Jerry O'Connor and uh, his wife Sue... Um, started to leave out um, food for um, their local neighbourhood, <laughs> Yowie, and uh, they found that uh, it appeared to like um, bread and peanut butter, amongst other things, different kinds of fruit, and uh, the, the, the food was um, uh, always taken. Um, they, 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 of course, they said, well, maybe maybe uh, possums had somehow got into these buckets that were suspended by wires from trees. So they started to string um, black cotton thread at a height of six feet from tree to tree horizontally around around the area, and they found that this cotton thread was being broken when when the food was being taken. So they, they assumed that it was the Yowie that was, um, it was doing it. So on one occasion they got a... Um, a voice-activated tape recorder, uh, and um, hit it in a in a stump, camouflaged it very carefully, just down the hill from their place in the on the edge of the forest, and um, they uh, suspended a, uh, a plastic bucket um, full of um, of uh, food uh, from a tree that leant over a. Um, a, 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 a small cliff there, so that um, uh, whatever that this, this bucket would be rather hard to get at, and uh, and it's an area where um, they themselves had glimpsed the Yowie in daylight, 
and a neighbour, Brad Croft, had seen one uh, running across a, a uh, track just downhill from there um, uh, in, uh, at night. But uh, in any case, uh, they I've got a copy of the tape here, but um, it's, um, it, it's uh, it, 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 the, um, uh, the, 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 the tape begins with the sound of Jerry um, saying, okay, I'm camouflaging the tape here, uh, I'm moving away. You can hear his footsteps moving away. And then um, the tape is turned on once or twice by the sound of the wind and, uh, and so on. And then uh, through the Blue Mountains alongside that road I mentioned, uh, the, um, there is a, a railway and uh, coal trains move along there. And uh, you can hear the sound of the coal train. I forget what time that indicated, but it was a handy time check for Jerry. The proof it was the middle of the night or very early in the morning in any case. And then you can hear um, what sounds like big footsteps, crunch, 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 coming towards the, um, the area. And um, then... Uh, I'm just trying to remember the sequence here. I, I'm, I'm madly thumbing through the book to try and find <laughs> the, the section, but but um, there, there were a few things registered. Uh, there was um, the uh, oh yes, a, a, a great thump, hollow thump, which um, uh, they found in the later was um, the sound of the food bucket being hit by something. The the, the food bucket was split and uh, and thrown. Uh, several metres from from where it was hanging. Well, uh, a, um, uh, a possum couldn't do that. <clears throat> a human possibly could, a hoaxer or whatever. But um, but uh, it's a it's a funny area for anyone to be wandering around in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Rather dangerous on the edge of that cliff, and um, and uh, very few people ever. Have ever been seen down there. There's just, it's just, there's just no reason for anyone to be there. Um, so the bucket was was smashed and the food taken. Uh, then there's the rustling sound of um, of something messing around the area of the camouflage stump. The foliage being removed and then uh, what sounds like something clawing at the plastic covered um, tape recorder. Yeah, and um, uh, I'm trying to remember if somehow it managed to turn the thing off. Um, but uh, in any case, no, I don't think it did. I think it just uh, ripped the plastic covering. Yeah, r- ripped the plastic covering and strewed the foliage around a bit, and then um, uh, wandered off. And uh, there was um, uh, later on the sound of another coal train indicating. Um, uh, time frame, and um, I think in the morning a distant helicopter, and then the sound of Jerry approaching at uh, six in the morning to check the uh, the tape. Well, uh, Jerry showed me he documented all this with photographs of the stump and uh, and so on prior to uh, being discovered, and uh, he maintained that nobody, even in broad daylight, would have been able to see the. Um, anything in this stump. It was it was perfectly camouflaged and at night no human being would have would have been able to find it. But um, the um, he says well the um, the Yowie um, apparently its hearing was so acute that it could hear the hear the tape operating in this in the in the uh, 
Cubs. Um, so that, that convinced uh, Jerry, and um, he is uh, one of these um, transparently honest individuals. I mean, uh, I, of all the witnesses I've talked to, I'd put Jerry right up the top. He is a, a very honest man, and uh, furthermore, he's adamant. He said he and his wife will will uh, willingly take uh, lie detector tests on to testify to everything that they've experienced, including this um, tape-recorded incident. Uh, and he swears on the grave of his of his child. He <laughs> said, "I swear, you know." He, he's so adamant. He said, uh, "People must believe this because." He, prior to moving to that house, he, he had no idea about any of this business. He was a, a retired um, Navy veteran, uh, 20, over 20 years in the Navy, and uh, he said um, the whole experience of interacting with this Yowie has uh, spun his, his belief system <laughs> on its heels. To move on a little bit here, I want to talk about uh, what I found to be some interesting uh, trends or uh, maybe just interesting characteristics of the Yowie that that I had never really heard about as far as an American Bigfoot. These, uh, you know, sort of maybe even indicates that they're that they're the same kind of animal but a different species or something. I'm not sure, but there were sort of different aspects to the Yowie that I was unfamiliar with and had not heard uh, stand out in. American cryptozoology. One of them I wanted to ask about uh, was that the Aborigines uh, said that the Yowie seemed to arrive after long periods of wet and stormy weather. Um, would you say that that's, uh, that 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 sort of holds up uh, over the course of of some of your case reports? Um, well, um, yes and no. Um, uh, I, I, we did a. Uh, statistical analysis um, as best we could with our 300 or so reports. And, no, we couldn't find um, anything to suggest that Yowies have seen more in stormy weather oh. than not. However, <laughs> however, there are some cases that you think, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there are some individual cases where, um, well, for instance, a small village... Um, down the south coast, not too far from where I am, uh, where I've been many times. Uh, they've seen Yowies there repeatedly, uh, and white people and Aborigines there both have said to me that these things, they said you should come back in the middle of a really, really rainy period. That's when these things turn up. They come out of the deep forest and we're liable to see them in the village or on the edge of the village. Um, I heard, I interviewed a Aboriginal elder from northwest Western Australia, way the heck over there, um, one time, and he said that his people believe that the hairy man, I forget the local term they, they use, Jingara, I think, over there, uh, the, the, the Jingara is seen in stormy weather, really stormy weather. Um, and uh, we have a, a, a case that was dug up by Graham Joyner uh, years ago of um, uh, Yowie being seen in the um, in the uh, Tindley Mountains just south of here, and uh, the <coughs> the reporter said all the local people here say that these things are seen in stormy weather. That was White Pioneers. So, um, and then there are other, a couple of other ones. So um, I think personally, I think there may be something to this, but. 
our database is just not extensive enough. And uh, by the way, there are one or two, well, one <laughs> at least, Bigfoot report that I know that um, seems to hint, or possibly, at this. There was a there was a woman who saw one in Colorado not so long ago, and uh, a big storm had just passed over when she saw hers. Anyway, I don't yeah. know. Perhaps we'll, we'll investigate that further. And then the other, another one of these aspects was this interest in children, uh, sort of an interest in human children um, from the Yowie. Uh, what about that? Yeah. That sort of weird trend. Uh, yes, well, that, that's pretty much the same. Um, the the Aborigines, um, in some areas, certainly um, say that. Um, one of the Aboriginal elders that um, that Neil Frost got in touch with. Um, when he was trying to make sense of what was happening in the Blue Mountains, uh, he immediately said, um, well, um, do you have children in your house? And he, Neil said, yes, we do. Um, at that time, their kids were about two and four years old. And uh, the little kids had seen one. And, uh, and Neil said, why, why? And uh, the guy said, well, they seem to be fascinated by children or they have an interest in, in children. Of course, this frightened Neil. He thought, oh my God, are they going to run off with the kids or something? The guy said, oh, not necessarily, but there is some kind of infinity or or something like that. And um, I've heard that uh, from Aboriginal people um, uh, myself. Um, in, in some of the earlier reports from the 1930s or dating back into the stories that were collected in the colonial era, Aborigines seemed to be saying that uh, sometimes children would be taken away and eaten by these things. Um, so I, um, I just don't know, but um, uh, that's, uh, uh, that, that's the sort of anecdotal stuff I've yeah. heard and, and trouble beliefs. But once again, in our statistical analysis, for what it's worth, um, we haven't been able to establish that. I mean, certainly plenty of cases where children have been involved, but many more cases where men and women were involved. Yeah, maybe I should have not called them trends instead of uh, called them, uh, I don't know, strange mm. characteristics. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's worth mentioning for sure, absolutely. I mean, wasn't it true with the um, Zunaquar or the um, in British Columbia there, the, they used to call the Sasquatch the cannibal woman? or something like that? There was some similar belief that they might run off with children? Perhaps. I'm not as well-versed in Bigfoot as I used to be, I guess. Uh, so oh, some of these keep up with now, yeah. Yeah. And another one of these weird characteristics that uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about is the biting of the trees, this strange um, this strange trend or, or characteristic of uh, trees being being bitten into and, and, and um, grubs being taken out and, and no discernible animal could be doing it possibly except for a bird and, and that doesn't really make any sense either um, and, and, and people think it is the Yowie because it's in Yowie country. Um, talk about this uh, biting of the trees uh, situation. Uh, yes, yes, that's uh, an interesting one. Uh, it, it's, it's rather problematic because uh, some Yowie researchers say no, no, um, we don't believe it, uh, but others others take it very seriously. Um, uh, yes, it's, it's um, in, in, in some of these Yowie hotspots, uh, people have noticed 
that the, the saplings, perhaps four inches in diameter, four to six inches in diameter, of course, that was smaller, have been bitten by something uh, that was quite evidently looking for wood boring uh, grubs. There's a there's a usually an indentation where a large grub had been right in the middle of this bite, and the grub has been removed. Well, something would need to have awfully strong jaws to do that. Um, nobody's seen the owie doing it, but um, people like the frost swear that these bites have appeared overnight right on the edge of their property. Um, and the only other candidate for making bites like that is the black cockatoo, which is a large bird with very strong beak. And, and they make very similar marks, uh, usually a lot messier though, and um, usually extending from, well often extending from ground level right up to way above head height, uh, different different kind of marks, sometimes very similar to these, quote, yowie bites. Um, but um, the, the bites that Neil Frost and, and others considered to be suspicious are um, always between about four feet and six to seven feet from the ground. Um, and they're spaced out along uh, pathways between, well, not particularly well-marked pathways, but chain trails between areas where yowies are seen frequently in the Blue Mountains. So, um, they've, uh, Neil and a, uh, an outdoor uh, educator fellow, Pat Ryan, um, plotted many of these tree bites using GPS and found that they they made a, uh, they ran out along uh, areas, uh, pathways connecting some of these yowie hotspots. Um, so, um, it, uh, it 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 does you know I'm 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 inclined to believe that the um, these bites are made by yowies, but it's it's an area where if you told an Australian naturalist who was sceptical about yowies about these bites, he would say forget it, they're just made by black cockatoos and that's that. But um, it's not quite that simple. Um, some one very experienced naturalist, Gary Opert, who probably knows more about Australian animals than virtually anyone, he's examined these um, bites and uh, and he says no, they they aren't black cockatoo bites. They're um, they are discernibly different. Um, so yes, it's it's an odd one. Um, but until someone actually <laughs> sees the how he's biting one of these trees, um, I don't know. Yeah. And, and uh, the other uh, interesting Yowie trend uh, characteristic that I want to talk about, which you alluded to earlier, of course, is uh, the feet of clay, as you and Paul call it in the book. Um, this bizarre yeah. foot situation where, uh, despite all these great reports on the Yowie, um, there seems to be no consensus on the situation with the foot, which is ironic in a sense because the American Bigfoot is uh, famous for the foot. But the Yowie uh, is like the opposite, where we can't get a real uh, bead on what's going on with the Yowie feet. So um, talk a little bit about the Yowie foot. Uh, yes, it's, it's very strange. Um, Aborigines, um, who in the tribal era particularly, and even today in many areas, are um, fantastic uh, trackers and woodsmen. 
um, seem to be rather vague about the shape of the Yowie foot. I mean, they're quite um, unanimous about the general physical shape of the, the big hairy man. But the, the foot, well, in, in, in Cape York, up that way, they talk about the creatures having three toes with, with, with claws on the, on, the, on the toes. Well, that seems strange because no primate, as far as we know, has three toes. Um, and um, um, further south, well, I've talked to Aborigines who say, well, the, 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 the tracks were like human tracks, only bigger. Well, that implies five toes. Um, the, the, the implication in, in many Aboriginal stories that have been collected by other people, as far as I can see, is that mostly they seem to be implying that there are five toes. Um, the tracks being bigger, of course. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, and when it comes to non-Aborigines, well, <laughs> in the colonial era, there are just a few cases where people actually looked at the feet while they were busy having the daylight scared out of them by making these things. A couple of them actually had the presence of mind to look at the feet. And um, um, in one case, the surveyor who um, had, um, a, you know, a, a, some time, uh, perhaps a minute or so while the thing was standing by his campfire, he said that the, um, the, the toes were very long in proportion to the rest of the foot. This is just general dispute about the uh, the situation with the feet. No one can really get a read on the number of toes. And even uh, some of the Aboriginal uh, legend says that the, the Yowie had backwards feet, which is even stranger. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, that is um, strange. Um, uh, of course, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a belief that uh, is, um, exists uh, in hairy man lore outside of Australia too. Mm-hmm. In the Himalayas, the, um, the Sherpas and other tribes people often say that the, the Yeti's feet are reversed on its ankle so that, um, you know, that it would baffle people trying to track it. Um, the, in uh, the Malay Peninsula, people told me this, the Orang Asli, the Aborigines down there, believe that the Orang Mawas or Orang Hitam um, its feet are reversed on its ankle. And even bizarrely in um, Andros Island in the Bahamas when I was there in 1979 investigating stories of the Yeho, the um, kind of medium foot, small big foot type thing that has been reported there, the local people said, well, if you go down there looking for those things and you see the tracks going one way, uh, you go the other way because the feet are reversed on the ankle. Yeah. So it's, it's a funny thing, and it certainly crops up. It was recorded, that belief was recorded many times, um, up to, as far as I can gather, the 1940s or or 50s or, or so in Australia. Um, it's, it's, it was recorded many times. But um, I must say that in the modern era, when, when I've been interviewing Aborigines. I've, I've never been told that hmm. by, by Aborigines myself. But it, it, it is a weird thing. Um, Neil Frost, um, he, he says, well, maybe they 
when confronted with with a, a huge animal that they they were frightened of and that was notoriously difficult to track, um, perhaps Aborigines pulled this idea of the reversed foot syndrome out of the air to sort of more or less explain why they couldn't catch these creatures. Yeah. And one of the great things about the book, uh, Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot, that you and uh, Paul Cropper co-wrote, I mean, you really synthesize a lot of the uh, case reports and break it down in a chapter with a lot of graphs and charts. And I appreciate that a lot, too, because it's not just like, here's a bunch of case sightings. It's like we took case sightings and actually did something with them and tried to come to some kind of conclusions and, and, and figure out maybe trends and that sort of thing. So uh, kudos to you and Paul for that uh, additional, for that chapter in the book. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Yes, it was a lot of work, that, and I hope we made some kind of sense out of it. Um, the, um, yeah, we got um, uh, some some of those graphs um, surprised us, actually. Um, we found that um, um, they, they they actually, when if you look at them, uh, I guess, from an impartial point of view, they, they do tend to suggest that this phenomenon is, is much more than hallucination or just myth or folklore because um, if people were imagining or hallucinating these encounters with Yowies, then you would think that they would see them nearly always at night Yeah. Um, uh, and um, that there would be a solitary human witness. But in fact, that's not the case. There are um, 115 cases where there are more than one witness. In, in some cases, many witnesses at the one time. Um, and there are basically the same, almost the same number of sightings in daylight hours as at night, although, of course, there are many, many more people around during the daytime than at night. Um, interestingly, though, uh, from dawn through to about 10 or 11 a.m., there are very few... Um, relatively very few sightings. Uh, the sightings pick up around uh, 10 or 11 a.m. and increase through to um, dusk and then um, uh, carry on through till midnight and uh, the very early hours of the morning and then, then drop away to almost nothing towards dawn. So there is a, a pattern. There's a real pattern there. And uh, the other unexpected thing was that there are many fewer sightings in summer than in the other seasons, which is very strange because, as in North America, I guess, um, there are many, many more humans wandering around the, uh, the forests in summer than there are in, uh, in winter and so on. We have our school holidays in summer <laughs> and... Uh, uh, families have these four-wheel drives and so on. So, but th there are discernibly fewer sightings in some of them the other seasons. So, yeah, quite a few interesting things were thrown up. Yeah, and then uh, another interesting creature that you discuss in the book uh, that is not the Yowie, but is um, maybe somewhat related to the Yowie, is the Jun. Uh, and let me make sure I pronounce this right. Uh, the the Junjidi. Yeah. Right? Junjidi. Yeah, Junjidi. The Junjidi. Yes, uh, uh, yes. well, um, that, is, uh, that is pretty strange. Um, the, um, after um, we'd been um, researching the, um, the Yowie for some years, uh, trying to accumulate information to prove that there were these big, hairy, <laughs> um, 
Yeti-like thing, the Sasquatch-like things in Australia, we, we started to collect stories of very small, hairy, man-like or ape-like creatures, uh, about three feet tall. And at first we thought, well, obviously these things must be juvenile yowies. But um, we started to notice that, well, for one thing, they weren't seen with adult yowies, like big hairy men or big hairy women. Um, and um, also we learned very early on that, that Aborigines, um, many different groups of Aborigines, I'm, I'm not saying every Aboriginal group in Australia because I don't know, but many Aboriginal groups believe that there are two different types of hairy sort of subhumans in Australia. Uh, that's not counting uh, Europeans. <laughs> um, the, uh, they um, they say that there are the big uh, the big hairy men, um, uh, Dulagals, Dulagals, um, Gubba, uh, Jarawara. They have many names for the big the big fellows, as they call them. Uh, but they they say that there there is this there is this distinctly different type called uh, Janjadi or um, um, there are many, many uh, variations on the word Janjadi and, uh, and other terms in, in different areas like uh, Nimbin and um, uh, Winnenbu and uh, so on. Um, mm-hmm. So um, they say there are different types. Well, some, some researchers um, say, oh, well, you know, the Aborigines just don't know what they're talking about. We, we couldn't possibly have two different types of, of undiscovered uh like men running around in Australia, the, the little fellas must be the offspring of the, the big ones. But I think that it's uh, foolish to disrespect or disregard um, centuries or thousands of years of Aboriginal law. So we we just kept an open mind for a long time on that. Uh, by the time we got around to writing this book, though, we, we thought, well, perhaps the Aborigines are right because... There, there are certain things you've got to consider. As I said, these little hairy men are, are not seen usually or virtually never at all with the, the bigger ones. They're often seen in groups, well, in pairs or three or four together, all small. Um, they are, um, and, and, and they're seen by Europeans as well as Aborigines. So um, uh, there may be some other aspects which are just slipping my mind right now, but there <clears throat> there are some con- a, a few considerations. So um, we uh, we devoted a, um, a separate chapter to the Janjadi in this book, and uh, oh yes, the one one the thing that perhaps um, could have some bearing on this is um, the recent <laughs> discovery of small Janjadi-sized skeletons. In, um, on Flores, the island in Indonesia, which is um, 700 uh, kilometres, uh, what's that, about 400, 500 miles uh, north of Australia. Um, they were discovered in 2004, as you probably know, the, um, the small skeletons, which they, they, they call these people Homo floresiensis, the hobbits. <laughs> and uh, the, um, they, have, they have long arms, their teeth, are very big in comparison to their, their skulls. Um, 
they're three feet tall. The the present um, human inhabitants of Flores say that these creatures existed until two or three hundred years ago, and according to tribal law, were covered from head to toe in, in hair. So, although there are no relics of uh, Junjiri-sized humans in Australia, um, Flores is pretty damn close to Australia, really, and in the Ice Age, when the sea levels were much lower, it's quite feasible that they could have um, uh, found their way to Australia. In fact, Mike Morwood, the um, scientist who was leader of the party that uh, found this skeleton, he says he's, he wouldn't be at all surprised. In fact, he would be surprised if these creatures didn't get to Australia. Um, his theory, which he may be modifying a little at the moment, but at the time we wrote the book, his theory was that um, these small creatures on Flores were the descendants of Homo erectus, which were human-sized or, or larger uh, creatures, uh, Java man. The Homo erectus got to uh, Flores 850,000 years ago, and uh, then that's the last we know of them. But uh, Mike Morwood and his crew speculated that um, finding themselves isolated on this small island, they, over 800,000 years, shrank to the size of hobbits <laughs> because, because elephants that were also on the island also shrank uh, to the size of uh, water buffaloes or, or cows. Huh. Um, so one theory that we just float, <laughs> we put it out there in, in the book, is that we say, well, Mike Morwood says that the little hairy flore, um, Homo floresiensis probably got to Australia. Uh, he, he also says that he would be very surprised if Homo erectus, the, the full-sized ancestor of the hobbits, he'd be very surprised if, if Homo erectus did not also get to Australia. Well, whereas whereas um, they, they, the, the Homo erectus that stayed on Flores shrank, the ones that got to Australia could have increased in size, like some Homo erectus uh, relatives did on mainland Asia. Mm-hmm. They grew in size. Um, the ones that got to Australia would have been presented with this vast sort of feast of um, megafauna lumbering around everywhere, just begging to be slaughtered on the largest island on Earth, Australia. So um, they could have grown in size and become, shall we suggest, the Yowie. Later on, uh, some of their smaller relations, the um, Homo floresiensis, could have got to Australia and become the Junjidi. Well, this is just an idea we put forward. Uh, it's one of the, yeah. it's the best. If, if, you, if you want to believe the Yowies and the Junjidis are flesh and blood, they have to come from somewhere. And, and this is as good a suggestion as we can think of. Yeah. The Junjidi chapter is amazing. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an awesome addition to the book. I'm glad you guys decided to put it in there. It sounded like you uh, were debating it for a little bit, but then decided, you know, we gotta 
we got to include the Junjity, and I'm glad you did because the chapter is awesome, and, and we just scratched the surface here on the on the Junjity mystery. <laughs> yeah, glad you liked it. And then, uh, sort of heading towards the big picture here, you guys come up with uh, four conclusions on what the Yowie might be, and uh, I'm amused by the way you uh, listed them because you have A, B, and C, and then X, um, <laughs> and and A being not real. Um, and we really don't need to discuss that because uh, the evidence seems to point to not real. Well, well, actually, why don't you just talk about each of them and how you how you uh, sort of dismiss some and, and agree with some and all that good stuff. Um, the the the, uh, the choices are not real, real, real but extinct, and then way down the list here at X is paranormal. Um, and you guys seem to say that you you probably don't think it's it's A or C being uh, not real or real but extinct. And uh, and you and Paul have your own sort of uh, friendly disagreement on whether it's real or real and paranormal. So uh, talk about uh, sort of uh, in all your years here of of, uh, of Yowie research, what do you think it's all about, and why do you think the other options aren't it? Well, um, yes, uh, let me see. That was a fairly good summary of, <laughs> of what. Um, uh, yes, well, uh, I think it's possible for skeptics to make a a fairly reasonable case to argue that the creatures have never existed at all and that they are just an amalgam of Aboriginal myth, European superstition, um, mass hallucination, misidentification of feral human beings wandering around, uh, hermits and so on, mm -hmm. and uh, just fear of the great unknown in Australia, other other aspects like that, or hoaxes as well. There have been there have been one or two hoaxes, um, not very clever ones, but there was one that fooled some people for some time. Um, so it is possible for a skeptic to make a reasonable case. Uh, certainly they could convince themselves <laughs> these things don't exist. But um, you can demolish that case. You can argue against that case quite convincingly. Um, if, if humans are uh, hallucinating when they see these creatures, then their livestock, their horses and their dogs and other animals are also hallucinating because uh, almost universally dogs and horses get extremely freaked out by the presence of um, yowies. So, I mean, if if uh, Australian animals, like their uh, benighted um, masters, um, also hallucinating. Yeah. Um, uh, so there are other ways that you can um, uh, address that uh, that suggestion um, that, that that never existed. The uniformity of the uh, of the descriptions and so on uh, is one thing. But there are many many other ways, and of course. Eyewitnesses get extremely irate. They say, "Look, there were six of us. How in the hell could we have all hallucinated it?" And and many people, um, uh, several, like half a dozen at least or more, people specifically said that they'd never heard of the Yowie. Well, many more actually said that, but that uh, half a dozen were new migrants to Australia who'd never heard, never even heard of the wildest suggestion that there could have been such a thing. Yeah. Here. So uh, yeah, that that's the first thing. Which so I, as you say, we we tend to say, well, no, um, you can't argue that these things never existed. They must exist in some 
why. Yeah, and you really don't even have to go into B, the argument that they're real, because that's the book in, in itself. I mean, the book is, is the argument that they're real. So, I see it. So, yeah, all the evidence. Yowiness, that's one thing. The, the, the discovery of these, um, these uh, like primate nests, um, that's, that's one thing that's quite physical, as well as the plastic cast of footprints and so on. Uh, yeah, so, and uh, you were leading on there to... Um, to the, uh, well, uh, the real but extinct. Uh, I guess uh, we really almost don't even have to discuss this because we're talking about uh, Yowie sightings that have occurred in the last few years and stuff, so obviously uh, the extinct argument sort of goes out the window with the not real. Um, so uh, let's talk about the, the paranormal aspect of the Yowie because that sounds like the fly in the ointment to the uh, Yowie mystery in some ways. Uh, yes. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, as you intimated before, um, uh, Paul Cropper and I uh, tend to we we have agreed to more more or less disagree on on this uh, point. I'm I'm much more inclined to believe that these things are uh, in some way uncanny or supernatural than Paul is. Um, mind you, I I hope I'm wrong. I hope that they're just big. Um, sort of Homo erectus or uh, yeah. Java man lumbering around out there, and that one day we'll get a perfect photograph and um, so on. But um, but there are uh, uh, well, there's a quite a galaxy of reasons actually, and uh, many many reasons why I think that there is possibly something paranormal about these things. Um, um, I I think it's because I my focus has been very broad over the years. I've, I've looked for uh, Yeti-like creatures in five different countries, and I've noticed that there are there are various uh, aspects that keep um, recurring um, in the in the attitude of the witnesses, in the attitude of the skeptics, even in the reactions of animals, um, and uh, the um, I'll start to lose my thread here. <laughs> um, oh yes, the w w one thing is that um, I have noticed this, uh, and this takes some explaining, I think. The I've noticed that um, areas that produce a lot of um, uh, Yowie or Sasquatch reports also produce a lot of other strange reports, like. Um, uh, reports of um, uncatchable black panthers, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's the most common. Um, or if you happen to be near a body of water, there are likely to be stories of people seeing strange water monsters, um, like up at Lake Okanagan, for instance. Uh, and um, also, quite frequently, uh, reports of... Um, Unidentified flying object or light. Um, also, occasionally poltergeist phenomena, like rocks sort of being flicked or thrown around, or showering, even showering on um, on one residence that was that was um, visited by a, a yowie, like so many pebbles falling that it sounded like a hailstorm. That's pretty odd. Yeah. Um, the also um, the way the um, creature's eyes um, at night appear to glow without uh, any uh, ambient light to reflect. 
Um, they just appear to glow as if lit from within. Uh, many witnesses in, in um, <coughs> North America and in Australia have reported this, and uh, it's just, it takes some explaining, at least. Um, uh, other things are the, the uh, incredible, uh, intense level of fear that many people experience when they, when they see these creatures. Uh, now, you know, I've seen bears close up and, and you get a, quite a fright. Any, any large animal that you encounter can give you a bit of a fright, but, um, uh, but, but the level of fear that people experience seems to be way out of proportion to their experience. Um, several people, uh, and I'm talking oh, 10 or so of our witnesses or 12 or more, uh, say that they're, they'll never go into the Australian bush again. <laughs> Wow. unarmed, or if they go in there, they, they won't stay very long, or they, if they go into the bush, they feel extremely uneasy and they have to come back out again. Um, all because they saw a Yowie 20 or 15 or 20 years earlier. It's, um, and, and others say that they have nightmares, um, recurring nightmares, um, women who we've interviewed have burst into tears um, talking about it. It's, uh, it's something odd. It's, um, I, I think it's quite significant. There, there are many, many other uh, yeah. aspects too that we, we list in the book. Uh, exactly. I want to go on endlessly. And uh, one of the one uh, side question here I wanted to ask you is uh, being Australian, obviously, and uh, the famous Australian... Um, I guess he was a naturalist or an animal uh, researcher, Steve Irwin. Did Steve Irwin ever talk about the Yowie or mention the Yowie uh, in, in, in Australia? Uh, not that I know of. Um, Steve was based in um, in Queensland, and uh, I uh, poor old Steve. I mean, what a yeah. hero! <laughs> a great guy. I was a real fan, and I had been past his. Australia Zoo complex on a couple of occasions. There are Yowie reports within rifle shot of that establishment. I'd be very surprised if he if he never mentioned the Yowie. No, but I, as far as I know, no. Um, however, um, I, I was at the time of his death. I was well planning to um, take this book, our new book, up there and uh, and see if I could get him to uh, at least market it for us. But but there was a fellow. Um, Prior to Steve, um, the best-known Australian bushman was Major Les Hiddens, who was known as the Bush Tucker Man. Mm-hmm. That is, he was the army expert on survival in the Australian bush, and Tucker is the um, uh, Australian term for slang term for food. But he was the Bush Food Man, and he he, um, he wrote books and. Uh, and guides on um, how to survive in the bush, <laughs> and very well-known man in Australia. Uh, I've talked to him in, in recent uh, months, and um, he is a Yowie enthusiast now. He's setting out um, traps, camera traps, in the jungle in um, North Queensland because so many of his army colleagues have seen Yowies. Huh. And uh, he, he also <coughs> found a classic um, primate nest up there, and uh, when he was guiding a party of six leading scientists through the jungle, um, it, uh, it was a, a classic find because one of the scientists had recently returned from Africa 
and he said, my God, uh, you know, if I was in Africa, I'd, I'd say that was definitely a, a primate nest. So, yeah, unfortunately, poor old Steve is dead. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't mean to be depressing. <laughs> I just figured... Oh, no, no. I, I, I mean, he had a great life. I yeah. Mean, he cheered up. He still cheers a lot of people up. Oh, I'm sure. I, I just figured since he was in Australia, Australia-based and everything, maybe it would have come up in one of his uh, appearances or something, but I guess it didn't. Um, yeah, we um, we should have, uh, obviously, if we'd have known he was going to... Uh, I, we, I guess we always had that on the back burner. Or one of these days, we must go and um, ask Steve uh, Irwin if he knows anything about this. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, uh, so what's next for you, Tony? Uh, last I talked, when we were setting up the interview here by email, you said you were heading to America... Um, so uh, that's probably what you're going to tell us now. But uh, what, what's next for you? What's on your plate here in the future in 2007 for Tony Healy? Well, yes, it's, it's mainly the trip to America. That will um, that'll be seven months of this year, from late April to um, mid-November. Uh, it's it's just something. Um, I guess I felt like a bit of a change after so many years of putting this um, book together with Paul. <laughs> I, it's got almost to the stage where I, you know, I don't want to hear another Yowie report. <laughs> but um, uh, and I'm not getting any younger, as I mentioned. So I, I, um, I thought, well, it might be time for one last big road trip in um, North America, the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got some good friends over there from my Bigfoot hunting days in 1978-79. Um, I think I'd better go and see them before they all <laughs> drop dead. Oh. So um, uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with all of them. And um, I'm uh, scheduled to also speak at um, a Bigfoot conference, uh, Don Keating's Tri-State Bigfoot Conference in Ohio. Mm -hmm. In um, I think it's from the 22nd of October. Oh, no, no, 22nd of May, sorry. Uh, that, that's... 21st to 22nd of May, uh, 07. So <clears throat> I'll be speaking about the Yowie there. And um, then I'll be spending uh, many months uh, touring around, uh, visiting, as I said, old friends and catching up with people that I have, um, I know through the email and so on, um, and um, visiting all the Yowie uh, <laughs> Bigfoot hotspots and uh, also visiting... Um, several of those monster-haunted lakes, which, um, you know, Lake Okanagan, Lake Champlain, and, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be, it'll be a bit of a Rip Van Winkle experience, what, almost 30 years. Uh, I was a young man when I was over there last, and uh, the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot um, research has moved on. Um, there's been new discoveries and new theories and new people involved, so I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, the USA is just always such great value. It's, uh, it's a great adventure for me. Awesome. So awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing you over there. Yes, yes. When you uh, you alluded to being in Boston, so when you do come around my neighborhood, we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to meet up. Sounds like you're going to have quite an adventure here in America. Uh, I hope so, mate. I hope so, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tony. I really appreciate it, uh, especially being all the way in Australia. Just to, just to set it all up and everything was, it was quite a challenge, but I'm glad we, we, got it, we got it all taken care of, and I'm glad you came on the show. The book, which you co-wrote with Paul Cropper, is The Yowie, In Search of Australia's Bigfoot. I cannot uh, talk about how great this book is enough. I can't, I can't put it over enough. Uh, not only do you get the history of the Yowie in Australia, but you're also going to get discussion on the hotspots of the Yowie, discussion on the Junjidi, 
amazing analysis on all these different cases and look at some of the trends of the Yowie and uh, various conclusions on what the Yowie might be. And an amazing appendix, a 100-page appendix, folks. 300 sightings in there, 282 cases, and 120 eyewitnesses. So Paul and Tony aren't just, uh, you know, putting in two cases and then saying, uh, here's the Yowie mystery. They've, they've, you've got a whole bunch of cases in there to take a look at and to examine for yourself to find out more about the Yowie mystery. It's just jam-packed and an amazing book that I enjoyed tremendously. So kudos to you and Paul on the tremendous job, and hopefully the Vanilla America Audio audience will pick it up and, and read it. And they can find the book at Amazon.com, of course, and AnomalistBooks.com. Either one of those sites will uh, get you on the road to picking up Yowie in search of Australia's Bigfoot. And they can find out more information on you, of course, at YowieFile.com, Y-O-W-I-E-F-I-L-E.com. Tony Healy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a great pleasure for me too, Tim. Uh, thanks a lot, and uh, I I wish uh, every interviewer was as well read as you are. I mean, you uh, you obviously read the book very thoroughly and uh, understood it. So um, it's 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 great to to know you appreciated it. Um, I look forward to seeing you in Boston. Awesome, awesome. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Ben All of America Audio. Big big thanks to Tony Healy for coming on the show all the way from Australia. It took me a little while to get the logistics lined up for this interview, but we managed to get it done with help from Tony Healy, so big thanks to him again for coming on the show. You can find out more information on him and the book at www.yowiefile.com, Y-O-W-I-E-F-I-L-E.com, yowiefile.com. Check it out, and check out the book. Tony Healy, Paul Cropper, co-authors of The Yowie in search of Australia's Bigfoot. I can't recommend it enough. Just an outstanding piece of work. Before we dive into the mailbag, let's take care of some in-house notes. For starters, over the break, when we recorded the new interviews, we tried to do it a little bit differently. We got some advice from people who have been listening to the show, who work in the audio field, made some suggestions. Hopefully the audio will sound a little bit better than previous episodes. Those of you who are audiophiles and connoisseurs of good sound, in addition to that, we realized that the BOA computer, which was fixed over the break, had been set at a lower internet speed, and as such, we realized that we have been underestimating the power of people's download speeds, so we're going to up the bit rate of the MP3s now, so that hopefully the quality will be improved a little more from that as well. And, in addition to that, we even got the mysterious voiceover man back in the studio to tape a new introduction to the program so we could get rid of those pops that a lot of people had been complaining about in the introduction. The pops are gone and I think the way we had the introduction will be how it rolls from here on out. So there you go, we made some improvements to the program here over the break. Hopefully you'll notice them. Moving right along now, of course, it's time for the Banal of America Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter comes from Timothy Green Beckley in New York City and here's what he has to say. Regarding your conversation with Greg Bishop pertaining to blacks in ufology, there are blacks in ufology. Bob Urich used to come to almost all my conferences in San Diego and Phoenix and has even organized conferences in his hometown on Philadelphia. Let's not forget Barney Hill. Can't we count him if we consider that Betty Hill was a UFO author and spoke at many meetings? I can't think of the guy's name, but there is a black contactee from Brooklyn who has been on Howard Stern's show more than once or twice. There was up till recently a show on Time Warner Public Access here in New York City 
that came on at 2 a.m. and consisted of lectures by various black researchers. Most of it was conspiracy, but they did talk about ancient astronauts and government cover-up of UFOs. One of my favorite sightings involved the buffalo hunter, a black gentleman, who while out one afternoon encountered a landed saucer complete with alien who grabbed his shotgun and bent the sucker like Yuri Geller would. The photo was in all the papers. This would have been back in the 1960s. And most importantly of all, Muhammad Ali, who I visited with numerous times at his home and training camp, claimed to have had over 20 UFO sightings, backed up by his trainers and other witnesses. I reported that for the Inquirer and in my book, UFO Among the Stars. Barbara Hudson lived in Harlem. She was a part of Jim Mosley's group and a good friend of mine. She knew Adamski and claimed to have had numerous UFO contacts with the group claiming they were aliens. UFOs cut across every cultural group, my friend. Keep up the good work. The show is always interesting. Timothy Green, Beckley. There you go, folks, an answer to the question that we were pondering with Greg Bishop on the Banal of America Audio Baseball Special Blacks in Ufology. Timothy Green Beckley, thank you for sending that great information. There's a whole bunch of blacks in ufology that we hadn't discussed yet. Interesting stuff there on Muhammad Ali and awesome information. So that is the power of BOA Audio. We ponder the question and we get the answers not just from the guests but from the listeners. Thanks again for writing in, Timothy. If you'd like to be a part of Banal of America Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to do it. A, go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will take you to the contact page that has all the information. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured here on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, is the thanks, big, big thanks to the fantastic BanallofAmerica.com staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna for your help and support with the audio series and the website. I also want to throw in a big, huge congratulations to Leslie and R. Lee, the two newest columnists at UFO Magazine. Leslie and R. Lee are now a part of UFO Magazine, writing monthly columns. As I've been saying, week in and week out here on the program, they are writing some amazing stuff, and I'm thrilled that it's not gone unnoticed by the powers that be in the world of esoterica. Congratulations to Leslie and R. Lee. I look forward to reading their monthly columns in UFO Magazine. You, the great Banal of America audio listeners, should be checking out their columns at banalofamerica.com, along with the fantastic columns of Chiron Tina Senna, and Joe V. BOA is not just a weekly audio show. It is esoterica, day in, day out, fresh stuff at BOA. Check out what we have to offer at banalofamerica.com and make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time BOA audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series, you simply go to banalofamerica.com click the PayPal button and make a donation. What you have just listened to this week was part of a two-hour phone call to Australia. Folks, that kind of thing doesn't pay for itself. I pay for the two-hour phone call to Australia with help from Banal America Audio listeners. If you can make donations, then we can do crazy stuff like this and do great international episodes. We're not a big radio conglomerate. We're a ragtag operation, and we are fueled by the great listeners like you. So, click the PayPal button, make a donation, and help BOA Audio grow and evolve. Next week on the program, we're going to get exopolitical with Dr. Michael Sala. 
one of the big movers and shakers in the exopolitical field. You've heard many people on the program talk about exopolitics, some pro, some con. Next week we're going to bring one of the gurus of the exopolitical movement, Dr. Michael Sala, on the program to talk about what is exopolitics, response to the critics of the movement, his thoughts on big UFO stories of the past year, Symington, the French UFO documents, all that stuff. It's going to be an exopolitical, ufological bonanza next week with Dr. Michael Sala. Check out BOA on Friday for the preview of next week's episode. And on that note, we call it a week. It's great to be back. Thanks for listening, folks. You'll be hearing from me next week. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.